So it was about the year uh, 2003, and I was working at a camp in, outside of Prince George called Nest Lake Bible Camp. And every summer we did this uh, one week uh, called Specialty Teen Camp. And at Specialty Teen Camp, uh, there were certain skills that we offered uh, at the camp where uh, teenagers would come and they would focus on one skill for the whole week. And so we had a skateboarding specialty teen camp. We had a mountain biking specialty teen camp. We had a wakeboarding specialty teen camp. Uh, guess which one I was leading? Wrong, skateboarding. I could kickflip with the best of them. Uh, I could land them about 10% of the time. Anyways, uh, but we had this wakeboarding uh, specialty teen camp. And so at the beginning of every week, of camp, the, uh, the kids would come down to the waterfront, and that was the intro to the week the, uh, where we gave the, the rules of the land and what, what was going to happen that week. So we had a couple hundred teenagers down at the waterfront uh, giving the rules, giving the overview for the week. Uh, and because of especially teen camp, we were talking about uh, how great our instructors were and how they were get, these, these teens were going to develop so much in their skills this week. Uh, and we were raving about our wakeboard instructors, and, and we said, we could teach anybody how to wakeboard. And in fact, we'll teach somebody how to wakeboard right now. It's in front of a couple hundred uh, teenagers. We, we said, hey, any volunteers? And all these hands shoot up of like, hey, I'm willing to learn how to wakeboard right now uh, in front of a whole camp. Uh, and so we would pick uh, someone from the crowd, they'd put up their hand, and then they would come and they'd get behind the boat. Uh, and so as we're exp- talking about the you know, the rest of the camp stuff, while the person's kind of getting in their swim clothes, life jacket, you can kind of see them out on the dock. Uh, and then we get to the point uh, of the presentation when we're going to show uh, how great our wakeboard instructors are. Uh, and so the, this guy gets behind the boat, and uh, he actually gets pulled. He's getting dragged behind the boat. And slowly and surely, he kind of starts to get up, and he's wobbling around, and his, you know, he's falling back on his back, and he pops back up, and uh, the boat's kind of doing the circle around the lake, and everybody's like, is he going to fall? Is he going to fall? Uh, so they do one loop kind of like that. And then the second loop, the guy comes around the lake, uh, and he busts a backflip over the wake. And then he comes the other way, he does a 720. Uh, and he keeps going and going, and everybody's like, what's going on? Uh, and then, uh, and just, just to give you a little bit of a picture, we had this kind of U-shaped dock uh, that kind of went to the beach. And so the, the final pass, he comes by from the outside wake uh, and hits the wake and does like this whole Superman, flies over the wake, flies over the dock, lands in the swimming area, and like rolls right up onto the beach, Kids are like, what happened? Uh, little did they know, the number one ranked wakeboard, wakeboarder in all of Canada was there as the wakeboard instructor that week, and he planted himself as the uh, fake teenager that we taught how to wakeboard. I loved it. The whole, the whole crowd, there was a few of us uh, who were on staff that knew exactly what was happening, but the whole crowd had no idea what was going on. Uh, they had no idea who was sitting among them. And you could say that this moment where the guy had busted backflip and comes into the swimming area was a bit of an apocalypse. It was a bit of an unveiling. What is going on? They had no idea. This is the, the idea of apocalypse behind the last book of the Bible, this idea of revelation, is basically that... People have no idea what is going on and who is among them. That we live in this world with a certain understanding of what's happening, certain 
uh, level of understanding of the evil and the chaos in the world and the whole crowd, the whole population in this world thinks, what is happening? And yet there's a select few people that understand something different than what immediately meets the eye. This is John's point in the apocalypse is that there is one among you. He's the best. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And you don't see him. You don't notice him, uh, but he is there and he's in control and he's on the throne. And so John is encouraging his church to open their eyes, not to look at what's among them, not to just take on the worldview of everybody that's around them, not to look at the chaos that's going on in the Roman empire when John was writing this at the time. But he's saying there's a greater reality. And if you would open your eyes, open your spiritual eyes, you will see that there is one among you. And he's the King of Kings and he's the Lord of Lords. And he's still in control, even if you don't feel like he is. This is the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word apocalypse, as we know, simply just means an unveiling. It's making known that which was not previously known And so John is making this known to everybody with ears to hear, with eyes to see, with those who are willing to listen. He's encouraging the church to remain faithful and to follow Jesus even when it's hard. He's encouraging the church that no matter who's in power at this particular point in history, there is someone who is in power above whoever's in power. That Jesus is on the throne today and forever. And we're not waiting for some point in the future for him to come on the throne. It's actually already happened. So this is the apocalypse of Jesus. And we find ourselves in the second last week of the series in Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to wrap it up and uh, look at the last two chapters, chapter 21 and 22 next week. Uh, But Revelation chapter 20 has been uh, the source of much speculation and confusion uh, for a long, long time. Uh, And I debated like whether to even like preach on this passage because I'm like, I don't want to just add to the confusion Uh, Some of you guys aren't even maybe aware of the confusion around this text and why would I create a question where there maybe isn't even already a question. Uh, But we're going to look at this passage, pull back and see what are some of the different perspectives and questions. Because it actually, if you're not even aware of those perspectives, it might even help you to understand why there's uh, so many different views on Revelation itself. And so reading from Revelation 20, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit, And a heavy chain in his hand, he seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. Everybody say a thousand years. The angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw... Thrones and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They all came to life again and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You're getting a good job. Uh, This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until... The thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When 
The thousand years comes to an end. Satan will be led out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog. In every corner of the earth, he will gather them together for battle. A mighty army as numberless as sand along the seashore. And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so as you read, there's a reference to a thousand years in this text. Six times in these nine verses, we read the phrase a thousand years. And this thousand years is referring to a time where Satan is bound up, where Jesus is ruling and reigning, and he is reigning along with his people. This is what the thousand years refers to. These are are the only verses in the entire Bible that speaks of Jesus reigning for a thousand years. And as some of you are aware, and some of you maybe aren't aware, uh, there's been whole systems of thinking and theology and understanding the book of Revelation around these six references to a thousand years that occur in these nine verses. Whole systems of understanding and interpreting history built on one phrase that exists in these nine verses. Now, there's basically three primary interpretations of this text and all those different variations of each one of these. These are kind of the the big three. There's premillennialism, millennialism obviously referring to the thousand years, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Premillennialism arguing that Jesus comes back again before this thousand-year reign. Postmillennialism, arguing that Jesus comes post, after the thousand-year reign, so God's people are reigning, and then Jesus comes after. Amillennialism, arguing that Jesus is actually reigning right now, the thousand years is a symbol of the church age. And so if we briefly just overlook uh, all three of these, premillennialism, we could draw out something like this. Jesus returns and power and glory before this millennium age, before this thousand-year period. When Jesus returns, he strips Satan of all of his power. The Christian dead are resurrected, and then Jesus sets up this kingdom of the saints on earth who rule the earth with Jesus for 1,000 years. In most premillennial systems, the 1,000 years has taken literally exactly 1,000 years. And at the end of this period, Satan is released. He tries one more time to destroy Uh, the saints, and take over the world, but he himself is destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire. This would be a brief overview of the premillennial kind of view. Postmillennialism, in this option, there's only one final coming of Jesus, but it is after the 1,000 years. So that's where we get the label postmillennial. Before Jesus comes, there is a 1,000-year reign, which may or may not be exactly 1,000 years in which unlike any other time in history, history, the gospel is winning, people are being converted and following Jesus, and it's increased, the gospel is increasing throughout the world. During this period of time, the church finally lives out this gospel kingdom. Most pre, uh, post-millennials uh, believe uh, that Jesus' reign began with his ascension and continues by means of preaching the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit. The post-millennials believe that the rule of Jesus is now on earth and will ultimately transform society over time. The post-millennials believe that both the pre-millennials, amillennials, or amillennials underestimate the power of the gospel. And so for that thousand-year period before Jesus returns, the view is that, that the world is going to be transformed slowly 
and surely over time because of the gospel. The amillennial view, in this view, in this view though, 1,000 years is understood symbolically. There is no literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus, thus the label amillennial. And so in the Greek language, when you put the letter A in front of a word, it kind of negates the word. It kind of cancels it out. So it's not millennial. Uh, it's, not, it's not actually not millennial. You could understand it as being symbolically millennial. And this option is stressed that the New Testament knows only one future coming of Jesus. That is the end of history as we know it. In this option, Jesus began his reign at his first coming, and his kingdom is present today now, and his, his, uh, his kingdom is a spiritual and inward kingdom, and Jesus will return at some point in history to finish what he started. Satan was defeated and bound at Jesus' first coming. Um, just before Jesus comes again, Satan will be released for one final onslaught, and then Jesus comes and the new creation begins. So, you with me? We got five people with me. Is there anybody else with me? All right. Everybody say a thousand years. Okay, there we go. Uh, so which, which of the three is correct is, of course, the question. Uh, so first of all, each of these three options are developed by uh, people that love Jesus, scholarly people that studied the Bible. Uh, the, but unfortunately, these two, three views have been used to draw lines of division in the church uh, for a long time. Now, all three of them have something important to offer, and all three of them uh, have certain blind spots, and each one sees something in the book of Revelation that the other one uh, is not seeing. Uh, none of these systems is watertight, um, because uh, this, these thousand-year references only occur in these nine verses. It is difficult to systematize and understand the whole scope of history uh, in light of these nine verses, uh, but there's blind spots. None of them are watertight. If faithfulness to scripture is measured by how long a position has been held for in church history, then amillennialism wins. It was actually already um, believed to understand the millennial kingdom in this way uh, already in the second century. If faithfulness to the biblical text is measured by the degree of confidence in the transforming power of the gospel today, then postmillennialism wins. Uh, because they believe that this, this transformation is going to happen uh, through uh, the church. If faithfulness is measured by the zeal for the Lord's return, then probably premillennialism wins. If uh, faithfulness is measured by the, the amount of money that has been poured into a certain view, then for sure premillennialism wins. Remember, left behind, based on a true story that hasn't happened yet, uh, so a lot of these writings and movies came from a pre-millennial view. Answering the question isn't just a theoretical or intellectual exercise because it actually changes the way we live. It changes how we understand our function in society today. It changes the way that we pray. It changes the way of what we can expect when we follow Jesus and when we act as his witnesses today. Uh, no matter which one of you, which one of these three you might lean towards, uh, all three agree on these points, that the best is yet to come. The future is not up for grabs. It belongs to Jesus. The future is not actually in our hands. It's in the hands of Jesus. And it breaks in from the outside. I just want to look at blind spots really quick. In premillennial view, things, uh, it's far too pessimistic. Uh, it does not take the power of the gospel to transform the world seriously enough. 
which is why a radical call to discipleship and to follow Jesus and to live in a countercultural way is sometimes not sounded loudly enough uh, among people that hold to a premillennial view. We're basically living and just waiting for the end of the world. Kingdom living is projected into some point in the future. It's also quite troubling that uh, the premillennial view creates this desire, sometimes overtly, for things to get worse. In fact, I've, I've been a part of situations where I've actually heard people praying for war and destruction to happen because they view that as a necessary sign of the end. Indeed, the premillennial view needs things to get worse. In the post-millennial view, one of the blind spots is far too optimistic. It's borderline humanism, which is this disbelief that we will slowly just make the world a better place on our own. It does not take into reality, uh, take seriously the reality of sin and evil. Uh, For sure, in the end of the story, as we'll see next week, sin and evil have their end and they don't have the last word, but it overestimates our ability as humans to conquer it. Um, and might be actually slow to recognize that it's only Jesus that comes and brings the ultimate rescue. Uh, The amillennial position can too easily lose touch with reality because it's symbolizing revelation. In trying to keep the symbol as a symbol, it can be tempted not to take the reality that the symbols are representing seriously. So as we've said, this entire series, just because something is symbolic doesn't mean that it's not true. It's just not to be taken literal. So this brings us to the point of the thousand years. Is the thousand years a statistic or a symbol? You guys already know my answer, don't you? Statistic or symbol? Symbol. Every number in the book of Revelation is a symbol. The millennial rule could turn out to be exactly a thousand years, but that is not the point, I believe, of what John is saying. All the numbers in the last book of the Bible have turned out to be symbols. This has been our interpretive approach to the whole book throughout this whole series. The the interpretive principle that we've been working on is that all numbers are representing a truth, a reality, but they're symbols. If you only, if you interpret them literally, you will have interpretational chaos. If you interpret some literally and others symbolically, you will also have chaos. And part of the reason why many interpretations are difficult to understand about the book of Revelation and why many of you coming into the series are like, Oh, I've never actually understood that before is because a lot of interpretations in history have tried to take things literal that were intended to be symbolic. In fact, when we take things literally, we often end up with something like this. How many of you guys have seen something like this before? Makes sense, right? Many of you have seen charts like this, and I don't want to keep it up because I don't want you to study it. Um, But it's no wonder that people are just intimidated by the book of Revelation. When we take symbols literally, we end up with complex systems that are almost uh, too complex. And there's, there's a whole bunch of disagreements even in that complexity because we've misunderstood how to read certain texts in Scripture and have misunderstood that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature that is written very heavily embedded in historical and biblical symbols. For example, does Jesus actually have seven eyes and seven horns? Um, Some of you might say yes, and we can chat after. But most of you will say, I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, we'd say, of course not. not, I know that's symbolic. I know we're not supposed to think that's symbolic. Um, That was an obvious one. But in Revelation, we look at the 144,000. There's some faith movements in history that said that's a literal uh, group. Is it, were we supposed to take that number 
uh, literally, when we looked at that, we recognize, no, it's 12 times 12, times 10, times 10, times 10. And these are symbols throughout the book of Revelation, throughout the Bible, 12 times 12 is clearly symbolic, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples of Jesus, 10 is the number of completeness. So you have 12 times 12 times 10, which means the completed number of God's people. If you could 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10, it's this massive completed number of God's people. That's why when John hears the 144,000 and he looks to look he turns to look at the 144,000. He doesn't see 144,000. He sees a great multitude that nobody can count. Because the 144,000 represents this huge, complete, cosmic picture of the people of God in history. Ten fingers, ten toes, ten commandments. Ten is complete. Ten, by, ten times ten is a very complete number. Ten times ten times ten is a very, very, very complete number. It could literally be a thousand years. It could be a lot more. The point is, however long the period of time, it is a complete amount of time for God to complete what he wants to do in history that represents his complete sovereignty over history. The number 1,000 is saying... It's all under God's complete sovereign control. So no matter what, pre, post, ah, whatever group you might land in, all sides ought to agree on a number of things that have already been clear in Revelation, the New Testament, and the first one is that a thousand should be read as a symbol. The three sides also ought to agree that um, when does Jesus become king? This important question for us to answer. We should all agree that Jesus is not to become king. And if this is what is thought, then we've already misread the whole book of Revelation in the New Testament. Jesus is already king. He's king of kings and Lord of lords today. In Matthew 28, 18, then Jesus came to them and said, all, everybody say all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not will be given to me, has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth. Acts 2.16, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Messiah meaning king. Ephesians 1.20, the power is the same. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. This is clear from the beginning to the end of the New Testament. Jesus is not waiting for some point in the future to take up authority and to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It has already happened. He is already there and nothing can remove him. The three options also ought to agree that the church is not this helpless victim on the stage of history. Jesus, who already reigns right now, lives among us and actually lives in us. There is a sense in which the church already reigns with Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, we read that the, Jesus, the ruler of the rulers of the earth, has made us to be a kingdom of priests. Not will make us at some point in the future, has made us already which means that there is work for us to do, that there is part of partnering with God in his reign right now that we ought to be doing. And finally, the three options ought to agree that the gospel, the good news, changes things. The word that's translated as good news in the Bible is a political 
word that means that there has been a victory won somewhere that has implications for the land that we live in. And so people would go and announce the euangelion, the good news, the gospel, and say there's been a victory that has been won. And this has good implications for us where we are living right now. So these are areas that if we're reading the New Testament and Revelation honestly, we ought to be agreeing on. Now let's try and see as John sees in the context of this uh, chapter, Revelations 20. Now I want, to, I want you to notice what precedes and what follows this millennial text. So the millennial text, don't get overwhelmed. Uh, the millennial text there is in the blue. In the text before we looked at last week, chapter 19, 11 to 21, we're told that the kings of the earth assembled to make war with him who sat upon the throne. Also referred to as Armageddon. This Armageddon moment. This is the first yellow text. The second yellow text is the passage that immediately follows the millennial text, which we just read. We are told that Satan will be released to gather the nations together to make war. So which one is it? Is the war before the millennium? Or is the war after the millennium? Or is there two wars? Is there a final Armageddon war before the millennium? And then after the millennium, there's another final war? Then wouldn't that not be a final? Anyways, uh, in each text, the one preceding and the one following, the war is never fought. This is what we studied last week. The kings, all the evil forces are gathering to make war against Jesus, and then Jesus just shows up and he speaks and the war is over. The kings gather for War, Jesus shows up, the war is over. In between these two wars, we hear about a thousand years. So war that gets never fought, the millennium war that gets never fought. It is my view and the view of many scholars that the war that's being described on both sides of this text is the same war. The text preceding the millennial text and the text following the millennial text are describing the same battle. And this isn't unique to this part of Revelation. We see that Revelation throughout the whole study has gone in cycles, that we read the same events, multiple angles from multiple places. As we have emphasized throughout the series, what John sees next isn't necessarily what happens next. The book doesn't go in chronological order. We see themes that circulate that go over and over and over again uh, remember when we studied revelation 12 it's a christmas text so it's not an end of the world text. it's actually a history text we see this in revelation 6 and 7 these moments where we go back in time and then forward in time and these cycles happen now if we zoom in so this this picture now on the screen is like the zoom into the middle of the text so we've gone uh, into the sandwich between these two wars into the middle of the sandwich the millennial sandwich we focus on chapter 20, verse 1, it says, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and the heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, and Satan bound him in chains for a thousand years. So we need to note the, this phrase that's in purple on your screen. I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Whenever this phrase, an angel coming down from heaven or going up to heaven, is used in the book of Revelation, John is going back in time. G.K. Beale is a scholar that wrote a 1,200-page commentary, and he said, without exception, which is a pretty big statement to make for a scholar, without exception, every time this phrase is used in the book of Revelation, it is referring back in time to an event that has already happened. 
So he sees, John sees the kings assemble for war, future. The yellow text. Then an angel comes down from heaven. We go to the past. What he sees in the angel's scene precedes what we see in the final battle seed. Whatever John means by millennium in his mind, it takes place before Jesus rides into his final victory. Well, when in John's mind did the millennial reign of Jesus begin? He says the millennial reign of Jesus began when Satan was thrown down, when he was hurled down, when he was bounced out of heaven. And when was Satan thrown down and bounced out of heaven? Well, it began at the first coming of Jesus, and it was culminated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, Jesus is seen right away as the king, as the Messiah. This was played out in the life and ministry of Jesus, and it was culminated, as I said, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Mark 1.15, it says, The time promised by God has come at last. He announced, The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news, the gospel, the euangelion, this victory that has happened, that has implications for today right now. This is how Jesus begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1. It's not a kingdom that's coming. It's not good news that's down the road. It's good news that has already happened. Jesus came proclaiming that a victory has been won. He's coming out of the wilderness, if you remember that story, where he conquered Satan in the wilderness in the three temptations. And he comes out of the wilderness, and there's, he's pronouncing the kingdom. And then he goes on to his earthly ministry, where he is bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is freeing people from the grip of the demonic. Why? Because the leader of the demonic forces Satan has somehow been restricted or bound up. In Mark chapter 3, 27, says, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. The first parable Jesus told about this good news is that no one can enter and plunder the strong man, referring to Satan, his house, unless you first bind him up or tie him up. He's talking about why he was able to bring the kingdom of God to earth because he had already bound up Satan. And this is actually the same word that is used in Revelation 20, verse 2. He sees the dragon, the old serpent, who is the devil, devil Satan, and bound him in chains. Same word in Mark 3, 27. The word tying him up, the word binding him up, is just different translations of the same word. Jesus' ministry of liberating people, of freeing people from demonic forces, is because he is the stronger man that has tied up Satan, the strong man, and is plundering his house. In John 12, it says, now, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When is this supposed to happen? What, is the, what does the text say? Now. Now, when I am lifted up. And lifting up, referring to this moment on the cross or his ascension, either one. It's referring to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus can draw all people to himself because the one who had been holding people in his grip has now been tied up and bound up. Matthew 28 says, All authority, we already read this, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does it say next, though? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And so we see that Jesus reigns, that Jesus bound up Satan, and now there's implications for that. We can now partner with Jesus and make disciples of all nations because the one who had been deceiving the nations previous, Satan, has been bound. But why then, you might you ask, 
Are so many people so deceived and so many evil, is so much evil still going on in the world? Well, this is the question of the book of Revelation. We come right back to it again. That things are not as they seem. That Jesus is on the throne. Yes, and although Jesus, or although Satan is bound up, he has not yet been thrown into the lake of fire. That's yet to happen. But he is using demonic forces. He is using the beasts of the earth, the beasts of the sea, which is the dragon-manipulated political power, the dragon-manipulated religious power, to do his work. These are his cronies. He can, he's almost like this mafia boss that's been bound up in prison, but he's still, his, his systems are still infiltrating the world. That's kind of the picture we get. So you might think, well, it sure doesn't look like Jesus is in charge. Well, this is why we were given the apocalypse of Jesus Christ the unveiling of things, because things aren't as they seem. And you have to have eyes to see and ears to hear where Jesus is and what he's actually doing. The best interpretation of Revelation chapter 20 is Ephesians chapter 2. It reads, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, let's say, made us alive. This is resurrection language that we see in Revelation already made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ. Everybody say that. Raised us up with Christ. This is past tense. It's not future tense. It raised us up with Christ. And what? Seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Past tense or future tense? Past tense. He has made us alive. He has raised us up. He is seated with him. John wants us to think of ourselves as already reigning with the reigning Jesus, already experiencing resurrection life. Revelation 20 verse 4 says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Already his people reign with him. Somehow the church already reigns with him because Christ is seated on the throne and we as sons and daughters are in Christ. This is what it says over and over again in the New Testament. Jesus reigns and, he, and somehow we too reign with him. So as we've seen through the whole book of Revelation, that Jesus is reigning, and he reigns not in the way that people think he should, but it's victorious. He reigns not like a lion, but like a lamb. He reigns by giving himself away for sinners. He reigns by suffering for and with sinners. And we reign with him by suffering with him, by being a servant with him, by choosing to follow him, to worship him. We reign with him every time we make a choice to follow Jesus, no matter what the consequences, we are choosing to reign with him. We reign with him when we take on the priestly role like we talked about last week where we pray for people and we bring them to the Father. We reign with him when we take on the priestly role and we bless people and tell them about the love and the grace and the truth of God. So I'm not sure which one of these three you want to land on. You probably have a good idea where I land, but we can save that for later. Some of you might want to take a fourth option. You're like, oh great, there's a fourth option. Yeah, it's called panmillennialism. And this view means that everything will pan out in the end. <laughs> and that one is, you can take it to the bank. You can take it to the bank. At the end of the day, that's what the book of Revelation is about. Jesus reigns now. You are in Christ now. You reign with Christ now. So worship Jesus. Partner with him in what he's doing in the world. Be willing to give your life away for it. It will be worth it.
This is the promise and the message of the book of Revelation. I understand that there's a tension when we read texts like this, when we understand this, this cosmic reign of God and then we live our life and we're like, ah, it sure doesn't feel that way. But we return back to this is actually why the book of Revelation was written for you and I, because Jesus understands that for us it doesn't feel that way. He understands that there's a whole bunch of reasons, whether personal, relational, political, economic, whatever it is, there's a whole bunch of reasons that we go through life and we're like, it sure doesn't feel that way. But the book of Revelation was given to the church to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we would not grow weary, that we would not lose heart, that we would follow him no matter what, because the promise at the end, which we're going to talk about next week, is that we get to live forever with him promises that we would experience the resurrection and that resurrection life doesn't start someday in the future. It actually starts today. And then we read actually at the end of Revelation 20 that the second death cannot touch us, which means that we cannot be separated from the love of God. We cannot be separated from the presence of God. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 8. And so we need to learn in the present to lift our eyes to Jesus, keep our eyes on him, because he is on the throne. He does reign, and we shouldn't lose heart. And if we keep our eyes on him, the promise of revelation is that we will overcome. That God will renew all things. And man, am I excited to talk about that next week. So we invite you to come back. Uh, Let me pray for you. After I pray, the prayer teams will be available at the front if they can pray for you for anything. They would love to pray for you. Um, I know, like we just said, there's some times in life where it feels like there's not a whole lot of reigning happening. And what a great time to share that with other brothers and sisters and pray together and lift each other up and lift their eyes up to Jesus together. So Father, we thank you that you've given us this book to encourage us in this time. Lord, you've given us this book as a reminder that no matter what might be swirling around in our lives, that this cosmic truth is unshakable. And thank you that that has the power to anchor us in the present. And so, again, we lift our eyes to you, Jesus. We thank you that you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords, and that you reign today and forever. And that is good news for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. Have a great week. We'll see you next week as we wrap up the Good News Apocalypse. Thank mm-hmm. you.